Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series for the spring and summer is called Conversations. Each week we will take a topic and have members of our congregation talk about it in a pre-taped interview. These conversations are not scripted, and they form the foundation of the sermon being spoken about that day. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. So our first scripture reading comes from Paul's letter to the church at Rome, the 14th chapter, verses 13 to 23. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves because of what they approve. But those who have doubts are condemned if they eat, because they do not act from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today, it comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. This is what we commonly refer to when I preach on this from the Gospel of Mark. This is called Jesus' way. It's his way of living, what he asks all of his followers to do if they're going to call themselves his disciples. Then he said to them all, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. So we're coming to the end of this sermon series. We're getting closer to it now. And as usual, each week we start with a pre-taped conversation between you all. Today we are talking about the cost of sport. I'm sure you all will very much look forward to what I have to say about that. But before we get there, why don't we see what everybody else in the congregation who we asked has to say about this topic. Wait, what, is your, what, was, what was your answer again? I don't remember. <laughs> 
What is your favorite sport? My favorite sport from a participation aspect is I am a runner, so I like to run and I like to exercise, but uh, from a spectator sport, I like hockey because you get to watch people hit each other with sticks and it's a, it's a good time. My favorite sport would be Taekwondo because I think that it's a useful skill in life. Uh, my favorite sport is definitely baseball. Um, I've been playing baseball all my life. I've been coaching baseball for 37 years now and um, I like the, the thinking part of it. It, it's a chess piece, chess pieces. Um, uh, you're, what, what the pitch is going to be, uh, where to play the outfield, where to play the defense, and, um, and it's, it's a team sport. Well, I'd have to say my favorite sport is actually soccer, despite what I'm wearing today, because uh, it was one sport that I really played a lot in high school. I played all four years, and I just had a lot of good experiences playing. Is the possibility of being injured playing a sport worth the risk? I think it is worth the risk because you'll be playing something you love and it's like you're passionate about it. So even if you get hurt, you'll know you like got hurt doing something you love, not something that like, because if it was something you didn't like to do, then there'd be no point in doing it. But something you love, there's, I think it's worth the risk. I believe um, downhill skiing is worth the risk of bodily injury, which I have. The beauty of being on top of a mountain and just seeing things that you would never see living at the bottom is amazing. And if I have to break a leg getting down, that's fine. Destroyed my knee. I've had two knee surgeries. Just before we got married. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, more recently, I've had uh, labrum surgery on my shoulder. And I'm still playing volleyball, so... I don't know what it is. My, you know, I don't listen to my body. It's just I love doing it. So, it, to me, it is worth it, even if you know you do get injured. Based on my experiences, if I had stopped playing soccer or any of the other sports I played based on the fear of injury, I feel like I would have lost out on a lot of memorable experiences. And I feel like I lost. I would have lost out on a lot of growth because through the teams and my coaches that I've had playing soccer, I feel like I learned a lot from them. Do you think professional athletes should risk their health if they could suffer an injury that could result in long-term consequences? Well, I don't think we can judge a professional athlete on what their decisions are. If that's the way they want to choose to live their life, who are we to say that that's not the right way to do it? They're putting their, themselves out there, they're getting rewarded for it, whether it's financially or just internal rewards. Risking injury, Serious injury, it depends on the injury. If you're looking like football where I can get concussion after concussion after concussion, I, I probably wouldn't play. Um, baseball, I don't think we have that risk. Um, we might turn a knee, we might turn an ankle, we might throw out a shoulder. I don't look at that as a real serious injury uh, where it actually affects your organs or your brain. You gotta find the balance between your love of a sport and the balance of what's going to be best for your life overall. And if that balance doesn't mesh because of the, the risk of injuries or because you like start to not be as good out there and that affects your love of the game, then at some point like you gotta balance that out a little bit. 
Should professional athletes sacrifice their bodies for our entertainment? Well, I don't think you should do it if it's just plainly for somebody else's entertainment, but if you're doing it because you love doing it, I think you should do it because it's just the entertain, like entertaining other people is just another plus to it. It's not like the only reason you're doing it. I think it's also my entertainment as an athlete. I mean, I'm enjoying myself, so, and I'm sure I'm enjoying the paycheck as well. So it would be fun to watch you roll down a hill. If yes, I think you know I happen to watch the Olympics and they're not getting paid. And right. when someone rolls down the hill, yeah, I do it feel bad. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, it looks awesome. I don't think it is right for us as for us as fans to like encourage someone to continue to go out there when it's not in their best well-being. I don't think that is right. I don't know if we always know too where that line is as fans. I think sometimes media keeps it clouded. I think sometimes team owners keep that away from us and doctors keep that away from us and for the players privacy I get it but I think there is a, a line there where a fan shouldn't if a, if a player's injured and a fan knows it let the player walk away let the player take their time to recoup some athletes are in a, a position where that's all they have they don't have that business background they don't have a, a college degree even though they go to college and they're pushed through the system but they don't have that opportunity so that's all they have for their family but I think it's up to that individual. You know, if they have the drive and they want to do it no matter what, um, they're going to do it. I can understand not wanting to promote something and, and because they're being injured for our entertainment. We're watching them and they have all the risk. But some people would play anyway regardless of the risk. All right, so today we are talking about something that is very near and dear to the hearts of people around the world, sports. Now, I think I'm not going out on a limb here by saying that sports is the fastest growing religion in the world. And I know this will come as a shock to many of you, but I think people enjoy going to sporting events more than they do coming to church. Do you think that that's true? <laughs> Yeah, I think that that happens, right? And I actually believe that the experience of watching sports is actually replacing the experience of religion in our culture. And you can see this over in Europe, too. It's not just our culture, it's other cultures. So in Europe, as the church has gone through decline, if you go to a church in Europe, there's like nobody there on a Sunday morning, right? But what you look at statistically is as interest in the church went down, at the same time, fanaticism over football, or as we would call it, soccer, went up exponentially. And so, looking at this, I've come to realize that there's actually a lot of parallels between the experience of sport and the experience of religion in our world. And I'd like to look at some of those parallels. So, when you come to church... You're gathering together with a group of like-minded people, are you not? Okay. So when you go to a sporting stadium and a sporting event, you're gathering together with a group of people who are rooting for the same team. When you come here, there's a lot of rituals that are involved in a church service, are there not? You, you come in, and we, get, we come together, we sing some songs, we hear a sermon, we 
say prayers, we end up having communion, we eat donuts. I mean, it's a very important part to what we do each and every week. There's food, right? So the same thing is true when it comes to sports. There's lots of rituals in sports. You have the coin toss to determine who will go first, the halftime show, the seventh inning stretch. You go, you eat lots of food from the stadium. And of course, there's lots and lots of praying that your team will do well and win the game. But beyond these basic parallels, I think there's actually an even greater parallel between the experience of sports and the experience of religion. And that has to do with faith. I believe that people, they believe in their sports teams in the same way that religious people believe in God. Now step back and think about that for a second. Why do you all come to church? You come to church because you believe that God is going to bring something positive to your life. Do you believe that? Yeah. So that's why you invest in this church. So it's why you give your money, your time, your talent to this place. That's why you come here, right? Well, the same is true for sports. People invest in their sports teams because they believe it will bring them something positive. It brings them hope in their lives. There is no other way to explain how Cubs fans could stick with that team through more than a hundred years of losses. They are like the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, praying for God to do something. Come and rescue us. And they're believing maybe at some point they'll be able to pull it off. And I have no doubt that if the Cubs actually win a World Series, that it would be an ecstatic experience akin to having communion with God. And I asked Judy in the first service, I said, do you believe that's true? She said, it'd probably be even better. So... (laughs) Now, there's some negative sides in these parallels also between the experience of sport and the experience of religion. Religious people, they tend to be so invested in their religion that they have a tough time seeing the negative consequences of their religious belief. So, when you're so invested, you see the positive and you don't always want to acknowledge the negative. So, for instance, the fact that literally millions of people throughout the centuries have been affected negatively by religious doctrine, whether it be through religious wars or witch trials or everyday discrimination, these types of things, the religiously inclined will sit there and say, well, yeah, those things have happened, but the positives, they outweigh the negatives. And the same is true for sports fans. When presented with the negatives, if you're that invested in your sport and your team, you're going to set all that aside and say, it's okay, it's worth the cost. So, when you look at this, you see that regardless of whether or not we sit there and say, ah, there's really nothing wrong with that, the negative consequences still exist, whether it be in a religion or in a sport. They don't just go away because you sit there and say, hey, I'm going to choose to ignore that. And we as Christians, we are of course called by Jesus to examine our lives and ask ourselves, how are we going to live differently when we know that there are negative consequences? In religion, that's really important. And you all know, I step up and I say, you know, we have to examine our faith and ask ourselves, how are we going to live differently? If you want to be like the rest of the world, you can live however you want to, it doesn't matter. But if you want to be a Christian... Jesus calls you to live differently as a result of your faith. Now, 
I think it's important that you look at the negative consequences of religion. If you were here on Mother's Day, you heard me preach a sermon where I talked about how the church has contributed to the repression of women throughout the centuries. And I talked about what we can do as a church in order to move forward and not allow that repression to continue. And I want to do the same thing today in terms of sports. We're going to look at some of the negative consequences of sport, and then from there, we're going to ask ourselves, how are we going to live differently as a Christian with this knowledge that we've just been given? All right, so I want to start by telling you a story today. The story revolves around an NFL offensive tackle named Kyle Turley. So in 2009, Kyle Turley, he was out at a bar in Nashville, Tennessee, and he was drinking with some friends and his wife, and he had had only one beer up to that point because he had to drive home. And at a certain point in the conversation, he started to feel like he was getting dizzy, and he started to sweat profusely, and then all of a sudden, he passed out on the floor of the bar. And his wife, she was able to eventually get him up and walk him outside the bar to the parking lot, and then he started vomiting uncontrollably. And his wife got really scared at that point. So she got him in the car, they drove to the hospital, and she couldn't get him out of the car into the emergency room because his limbs were shaking so badly. And as Kyle recalls, he said, I was conscious of what was happening, but I couldn't speak the words I wanted to say. This particular incident, it was the culmination of many similar, smaller incidents that had plagued Kyle throughout the last year. He had been experiencing, with increasing frequency, bouts of nausea and dizziness. And as you will probably come as no surprise to you, when he got to the hospital on that particular day in 2009, he was diagnosed as having what? A concussion. When you use your head as a battering ram, those types of symptoms are fairly common. But what will surprise you is that at that point in time, Kyle Turley, he had not played a game of professional football in more than two years. He compared that particular night to a game where he played against the Green Bay Packers in 2003. They were all in the pile after they tackled the guy, and a defensive back came in and kneed him in the back of the head. Bam! He was unconscious immediately. And when he woke up, the concussion was so bad that he literally lost three days of memory from it. Now, three days after the concussion, not even close to being recovered, he goes back out on the field and begins practicing. And he put it this way. He says, the coaches tell you, they say, you're either hurt or you're injured. There is no middle ground between the two. If you're hurt, you can play. If you're injured, you can't. And the line is whether or not you can walk and put on pads and a helmet. Now, those of you who are football fans, you know that concussions are par for the course when they are playing football. The frequency and intensity with which these men use their bodies to play this game, particularly the men on the front lines, every single man out there knows that they are assuming a certain level of risk by being on that field. And they have been taught that you can mitigate that risk if you simply avoid major blows to the skull. That's essentially what they're taught. And if you can do that, then you're probably going to have longevity in the game. You've probably heard that before, have you not? Okay. Well, this wisdom has recently been called into question by a study that was performed at the University of North Carolina. They did this on their football team. 
And they developed a system, there are many of these systems now, but they developed a system which was new at the time called HITS, H-I-T-S. And inside of each of the helmets of the players, they had put six sensors. Now, these sensors, they measured everything from the G-force of the blow to the location of the blow, and it was done whenever they were in practice or when they were playing a game. And what they discovered from this study is that the large major collisions, and let me define for you what a major collision is, just so we're on the same page with that. A major collision is, would be like you or I driving our car 25 miles an hour with no seatbelt on and hitting a brick wall and then our head flying into the windshield. That's a major collision in football. What they discovered was that those major collisions, those are not what cause concussions. Let me say that again. Those major collisions, they are not what cause concussions. What they discovered was is that it is the cumulative exposure of all the prior smaller hits that makes that larger collision so much worse. In other words, the previous wisdom used to state that those smaller collisions, they were inconsequential. They didn't really matter that much. You want to avoid the big ones, right? But what we now know, based on this study and many others that have been done like it, is that those smaller collisions, they have just as much of an impact, if not more, on a concussion than we used to believe. Now, when you are presented with this data, if you are a football fan, and I have a feeling that the vast majority of you in here are football fans, the go-to response is going to be something like this. Well, it kind of comes with the territory of the game, does it not? If you don't want concussions, then you probably shouldn't be an offensive tackle in the NFL. And Lord knows, they get paid more than enough money in order to handle a few concussions. Even Kyle Turley, the guy who we're talking about, who's had major medical consequences as a result of his time in the NFL, says that if he had to go back and do it all over again, he would still play. And so I am not so concerned with people who have a love for the game. Like, I get that. People love the game. I know many of you in here love the game. What I'm more concerned about is the hidden cost, a cost that until recently we didn't even know existed, both players and fans alike. There are two proteins that are involved in people who develop Alzheimer's disease. These two proteins are known as beta amyloid and tau. So beta amyloid, that's very important in the first stage of dementia. It comes in and it lays all this groundwork in your brain so that when the second stage of Alzheimer's disease begins, the tau can come in and start destroying all of your brain cells. So the tau is the killer of your brain cells. Dr. Anne McKee, a neuropathologist at the Veterans Hospital in Bedford, Massachusetts, she has spent her entire life studying these two proteins. And a number of years ago, she was examining some brain slides, and she came across this one of a man who had just died recently. He was in an Alzheimer's ward. And she looked at the results of the data that came back from that. And what she discovered is that this man, he had no beta amyloid in his brain. It was just tau, the stuff that kills your brain cells. And she thought this was very strange because he was in an Alzheimer's ward, but what that means is 
he didn't have Alzheimer's, because you can't have Alzheimer's if you don't have the two. And so she went back, she started to do some research, and she found out that this guy suffered from what's known as CTE, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which comes when you actually get blows to the skull. And so she did a little more research, and she finds out that this guy, he was a boxer in his youth, and that he had been admitted to that Alzheimer's ward 15 years earlier at the age of 50. And so she wondered, was the buildup of tau in his brain the result of all of these blows to the head? So she started doing some research. And she goes out and she starts collecting samples of brains from boxers and from football players. She gets 14 football players, some young, some old, some played high school, some played through college, some played pro. And she found that all of them, across the board, had an abnormal buildup of tau in the brain. She even got a hold of an 18-year-old kid who had died in a car accident. This kid played football in high school. She said there was tau all over his brain. She goes, you don't see tau like this in a 50-year-old. It is estimated that right now, 6% of all football players who played pro are suffering from some form of early-onset dementia over the age of 50. Now, that might not sound like that much, but that's five times higher than the national average. This number is expected to rise as the game gets more intense and more physical every year. And what Dr. Ann McKee has shown us very clearly is that every blow to the head, whether it be large or small, contributes to the buildup of tau in the brain and increases the likelihood of early-onset dementia. So, I come to you and I say that as one who watched football for quite a long time, when I was presented with this data, I thought to myself, concussions are one thing. I can handle that. That's not a big deal. But becoming the equivalent of an Alzheimer's patient at the age of 50, that was never part of the equation. I can handle bodily injury. Like, I get that. That's part of sports, where, you know, you get these, you get these sore tendons, you tear a muscle, you break a bone. Like, I get that. And those things can heal for the most part. But when just about everybody who's on the front line is in danger of suffering from early-onset dementia, that's a whole other matter to me. And you can sit there and you can say, well, they know the cost and they assume the risk, which is essentially how we look at it, right? But think back to when you were in your teens and early 20s. Were you really thinking that far into the future? I mean, come on. I worked, before I got to this job, I worked for 10 years with teenagers. You're lucky if they're thinking about the consequences of what they're doing right now, let alone years into the future. And you add money into the equation, and the notion that you're going to be in a nursing home at the age of 50 is nowhere on your radar. And I want to talk about something that Chuck Yeder said in the video. Chuck said, very specifically, he goes, you know, many of these people, and this is particularly true of the front line, they do not come from middle-class families. They come from poor, poverty-stricken parts of the country where sports is seen as their only way out. They do not have the educational background, nor do they have the perspective to truly understand the risk that they are assuming by playing this game. And so the question I started asking myself once I looked at this research is, is it right to watch this game when these men are jeopardizing more than their bodily health. I was good with it when it was just bodily health.
But when it came to their mental longevity, I started asking myself, would God want me to continue watching this game? Would God think it is wrong for me to watch this game when these types of blows to the head, which are so common in this game, and it doesn't matter whether you're a pro or you're a kid playing in a little league, the fact is that this can contribute to the buildup of tau in the brain and can ultimately set you back at a very, very young age. Now, before I answer that question, I want to talk about some of the positives of football. Because there are positives, by the way. Like, football is not just this horrible thing out there that everybody, you know, should just abandon. I get it. I get why people play football. I enjoyed playing football when I was young. So I understand that part of the game. And football, when you play on a team, it's great because it can help you find your confidence, you learn teamwork, and if you are good enough, it could provide you with an opportunity to go to college, like many sports can, where you may not have been able to afford to do so otherwise. But let me put this in perspective for you. If you walked into a room of your house and your kid was banging his head or her head against the wall, what would you say? You would say, stop it, you're going to hurt yourself, right? And if they kept on doing it, what would you do? You'd take your kid to a hospital and you'd have them psychologically evaluated. And yet, we have a game where we encourage the exact same behavior for our entertainment. Now, this brings me back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the sermon, which is, which is more important to you? Your love of sports, the religion of sports, or the religion of Christianity? And look, I get it. Like, I'm not coming in here trying to say, like, I'm not some curmudgeon. I'm like, I hate sports, and you shouldn't watch them. Like, I'm not like that, okay? I watched football for a long time. I get why people like it. I get why you like it. I know some of you played it. I know some of you coach it. You know, I know that. So I know that some of you right now are like, <laughs> you know, you don't like what I'm saying, but hear me out. Hear me out. We as Christians, we are called to make sacrifices. This is why we read that letter from the Romans. Paul's writing to the Romans. Now, this is what's going on. Let me just explain to you the situation so you kind of get what's happening. So, basically, the Roman church, they're starting to bring in all of these people who were pagans. And by pagans, that means they're worshiping like Zeus and all these gods out there, right? Now, the way that you got your meat back in the old days is you didn't go to like a meat vendor. You went to the temples because that's where all the sacrifices were done. So they kind of doubled up. It was like, you want some meat? You go to the place where it was sacrificed. Well, these people who are coming into the church, Paul's told them, hey, by the way, like Zeus and all those other gods on Mount Olympus, they're not real. But they're having trouble with this. And so they're seeing the meat, and they're unable to differentiate between the meat and the God, and they're struggling. And so Paul says, look, guys, those of you who are good and you understand this, you need to stop eating meat. Because you need to help these people become vegetarians so that they can get along, because they're struggling with this. In the same way, I believe that we, now that we have this information, we need to step up as Christians and go to these young men and say, look guys, I know you love this game, but you have to realize the risks involved. And it is a risky thing. It's not going out there and just having fun and it's a great time. You are endangering your long-term health. And that is a sacrifice where you come up and you say, perhaps the end of the game, what we've always thought is so wonderful about it, is not worth the investment any longer. I say this as somebody who knows that as you all are hearing this, you don't like what I'm saying. (laughs) 
Last service, I was watching people who were literally beaming at me while I was, while I was speaking about this, okay? So I understand, I know that I'm, you might feel like I'm attacking something that you love, and that's not the point of this. I want you to understand that when we contribute to this, when we contribute to this through watching it on television, through going to games, through buying merchandise, you are supporting a dream of wealth and fame that is beneficial for these men in the short term. No denying that. But in the long term, has detrimental long-term effects to their health. And just let me point out one other thing. Statistically, 78% of the men who play in the NFL are broke after two years. I've consistently been hearing this argument for a long time. It's okay because they're going to earn their money they're going to have for the rest of their life. But 8 out of 10 of them don't. And you can sit there and say, well, it's their fault for spending their money. And it is their fault for spending their money. But when 8 out of 10 people are doing it, there's something broken with the system. So are we going to turn a blind eye and say that our entertainment is more important, our need to be entertained is more important than the long-term health implications of the men who are entertaining me? Or are we going to take a stand? Are we going to sit there and say, you know what, until now we didn't know any better, and you get a pass, by the way, we didn't know this until five years ago. This is really when all this research started to come out. We didn't know it. That movie Concussion, which I'm not, I didn't watch that, but I know that's what it's all about. It's this very thing. We didn't know until five years ago, but we know now. Are you going to live differently as a result of that knowledge? Are you? Because remember what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to live differently than we are living right now. And if you're sitting there and you're seething and you're just really upset that I'm even bringing this up, I just want you to realize I'm not trying to take something away from you that you love. I want you to think about how you're going to live differently with the knowledge that this game can impact people in a really negative way. We are called to create God's kingdom here on earth, and that means we have to sacrifice. I'm not saying that you have to give up all sports. I'm saying you need to stop and give up three. (laughs) I'm talking about football. I'm talking about boxing. I'm talking about MMA. Because these are sports where the consequences to the players outweigh the benefits. And all we have to do, most of us in here, is turn off our televisions. I look forward to the barrage of emails I'm sure I will receive (laughs) from most of you in here. But you all know that I stand up for what I believe in, and I hope that you all will stand by me. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.